I'm Luke Tufts and you're listening to Level Playing Field. All right, so let's start at the beginning for you with tell me about your early soccer days or football, excuse me. Oh, is it more? We talking about playing? We talking about coaching? Play- we talking about? Let's let's talk playing first, since that's how oh, you got started. We talking about as a kid, like yeah. really young when I was a kid. Yeah, I started at seven, eight years old. Went and played for a team called St John's Boys, uh, just lo- local like park team. It was terrible, to be fair. It was uh, my first ever game I remember really well. Uh, my first memory in football, in fact, was giving away, one of my teammates gave away a penalty and they had a shot and it was literally right next to me and I didn't get it. I couldn't move my feet in time. And that's the first thing I remember. But back then, it's not like now. So when now, if you're young, you have smaller goals and smaller pitches. We didn't back then. We had 11 aside goals and 11 aside pitches. So a little seven-year-old in these goals, hundred times as big, it was just impossible. But yeah, that's that's my first, that's my start in football. Did that, played in goal for a couple of years, then uh, started moving outfield. Played everywhere, really. Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> and at that age, you're just running around chasing balls. You're not. Yeah, you're not really. It, back then. No strategy, nothing like that. No, back back then, uh, there was no real coaching like there is now. People did their best, but. They didn't really understand. But equally, you're like seven, eight, nine, ten years old, unless you're a little bit special and your brain's wired differently and you end up at an academy, you just beast the honey anyway. So like seven and eight-year-olds' brains are very different to an adult. So all they see, they get real tunnel vision. So when they're playing, all they see is ball. So that's where they chase towards it. They, they don't really have the perception of a, of a bigger area, which is why in co- kids coaching that now, you don't really focus on anything away from the ball. Just have touches of the ball. Just work on that because that's all you can see. So just work on that. And equally, as a kid, like you, you haven't really got into this team sport ethic. It's ball. My ball. Why am I giving it to him? It's my ball. Why do I want to help? <laughs> yeah, totally. a bit more selfish. So, no, and that was very much how it is. We just chased around after the ball, had a little bit of fun, worked my way up. What were you like as a kid? Depends, really. Real, real young, I was all right. I was a bit of a nightmare by the time I hit about 12, 13, to be honest. Uh, was very boozy, smoking funny stuff from like 12, 13 to 16, 17. A little bit of a tear away, you know how it is when you're younger. But I stopped really because of football, to be honest. I remember I was, I'll tell you when my life changed. I was 17 years old and I was playing for Camby Town Football Club. And I was obviously been, I was obviously buzzing off my tits. And uh, I was in the dressing room and my coach sort of spoke to me and was just like, look, we know uh, you're a bit of a mess, Ed. We can see, we, we see what you're up to in that. If you ever do that again, you're never coming back it. And it scared the living shit out of me. And from that moment, I never, ever did anything like that again. <laughs> really? That was the one thing? No, yeah. It stopped it. Football's my life. Football's all I did all day, every day. And I just stopped. Well, what did you do away from, from football? You know, like oh, 10, 11, really 12? Not a lot. I just, football, football was literally my life from a very young age. Um, did things there. Every other kid does, I guess. Played computer games. And that was like 10, 11, 12. But not really a lot else. It's just normal kids. You know what kids are like? We, we used to like cause like a little trouble and that, didn't you? You go out on the streets and you're out in the parks. Just, just doing silly kid stuff before you have mobile phones. Like, God, you, on, on that generation where we had life before mobile phones and during. So mobile phones come out when I was like year seven, year eight. So I know the world after, obviously, or we all do, but I also experienced the world before it where you have to remember what everyone's home phone number and go and meet each other and knock each other's doors, little Timmy coming out to play, go out the park <laughs> and run around and cause all sorts of bother. Now, yeah, buzzing, remember it well. For you, were you one of those kids that like sexuality just came early or were you a late bloomer when dealing oh, with no. that? Oh, I knew when I was almost seven, eight years old. I fancied one of my mates when I was seven or eight. Like, I knew, like, didn't know what it was. And I was gay, but I knew that, like, everyone else played, like, holding hands with girls. And like, I knew that I wanted to do it with my mate. And it sounds really weird, but I, I knew from then. Uh, fell in love by the time I was 12, 13. It wasn't love, was it? But I thought it was with, like, one of my best mates who was straight. And that went on for years. So it was a very confusing time, I guess, because back then, obviously, it wasn't quite as... Uh, well, this was what I was 12, 13, what late 90s, early noughties sort of sort of time. And back then it wasn't even in the short space of time, like 20 years or whatever it is. The world's changed a lot, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, even the last what, five years. Yeah, yeah. It's come on a long way. So, so back then, 
being gay wasn't really a thing. Like you knew, you knew of it, like Elton John and things like that, but it was like abnormal and didn't want to be like that. I always thought it was a secret that would die with me, to be honest. Yeah, because you know at that time there weren't many gay people you see in entertainment. Definitely not in sports. Um, there was a few, but you didn't really see them. So yeah, yeah, I mean, and what we did see it was like an Elton John or or uh, people like that. Boy George, Michael, yeah, and it was, and they were always weird. Like everyone you saw, like there was no one. I don't, I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. But there was no one you could relate to. Like obviously you had George Michael and that, and he was always cottaging in some toilets or whatever. And you had um, a couple of other quite famous people that were up to no good or whatever. And so there was no one really that you could relate to or look up to and think, oh, I can do well in life. I could be like them. All you saw was people probably not necessarily misbehaving, but certainly not conforming to social norms in any way whatsoever. And so in my perspective, I'm just a normal lad in every way. And I just happen to be gay. And there's no one like that I could have looked up to and said, oh, I can be like them. Well, yeah, because they were artists. And obviously being in the sports background, definitely a different person. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. There's certainly no one out like that that was out. Obviously, you had Justin Fashionu before, before even my time. But again, I didn't really know anything about that back then because it, really, it wasn't really spoken about, was it? These sort of things kind of got buried in history a little bit back then, didn't they? Well, yeah, and then to die so young, so it wasn't yeah. a good way for no, a young gay kid to, to deal with. So, No, not at all. Not at all. So when you're, you know, 12, 13... You're moving up. Did you get into academy at that point, or did you? No, when did no, you start no. Doing I was that? terrible. No, I was, I was as a, as a youngster. I was, I was terrible. Um, I was too good for the like bad teams. I was the best player in like the really poor teams, and I was the worst player in a good side. I, I was sort of a real middle ground sort of uh, kid. Uh, but by the time I was fifteen, sixteen, I started to play for quite a good side. And again, I was, I was one of the weaker players by all accounts, but a lot of the stronger players started getting picked up and I wanted to be like them. And I saw them getting picked up playing for Woking or, or whoever the local teams were. You probably won't have heard of them where you are, but good, good, strong, semi-professional and professional sites. And I wanted to be like that. So I found literally every club I could find in the area, all the local semi-professional sites and a team called Cambly Town from me back. I said, you can come train with us. And I went down there. And said I was probably the worst player they've ever seen at that level. And I think they felt a little bit sorry for me because it was a bit of a mess back then. And uh, they said, look, you're not good enough, but you can train with us if you want and you can stay involved. And at 15, 16, become my life. I was down there every day for six days a week anyway. Trained, trained with the first team, trained with reserves, trained and played with the under-18s, under-17s, the lot. And I, I worked my way up. First year, I uh, just didn't get near it. Second year, they started, by the time I was about 17, they started taking me with the reserves, like away games and things like that, like saying, look, we've only got 12 players in the squad, do you fancy coming? And if I went and got on, I got on. If uh, if they had injuries or players that uh, couldn't make it or whatever, if they had a full squad, then I wouldn't get on. Like, I remember it was, the, it was the maddest thing ever, like, it was my life. Like, on a Saturday morning, I wouldn't, they'd even say on Thursday night, look, we'll let you know on Saturday. So the game was on the Saturday afternoon. At 11 a.m. in the morning, my phone would go off and I'd be buzzing and be like, yes, I've made the squad. And I'd literally just run down the club. Yeah, <laughs> it was cool. Do you think your partying ways made it harder to excel football at the time? Or do you think you've just always been wired to be a coach? No, no, because I, cause I was so terrible. Uh, I had to think a lot more. So, for example, if you're in training, I don't sound stupid, but if you're one of the better players and you're playing anyway, like unless you're really serious, you, you don't absorb as much information because you don't feel you have to. But for me, because I was the weakest player, I was so out of my depth and I wanted to improve. I just listened to everything. And like, for example, I know it sounds silly, but other players could have a touch and someone will come and shut them down. They've got the quality of the skills to get themselves out of danger and, and play. I never had that. So I'd always have to know what's around me before the ball comes to me. So I could see he's over there, he's over there. Ball comes, open your body up and you move it quick. One, two, touch. Like people ask me questions and I found myself like in a corner of the field and the question was, can you beat me? The answer was no. But if I had options around me, I could just open my body up, move the ball quick, a little bit of awareness, uh, I could survive. And that, and that definitely uh, improved my brain. Obviously, uh, I was on the bench 90% of the time. And being on the bench, you listen to everything that's going on, listen to what people are saying. And 
you, you you're watching the game and you you're uh, transferring information you've seen in training and transferring it into what you're seeing on the pitch and seeing what works what doesn't work and so I, I think actually being really terrible probably gave me quite a good grounding <laughs> weirdly <laughs> You have been open about your sexuality in football for the longest time. When did it, when did it become known to teammates? Oh, when I was about 16 years old. So uh, back then, it's a legal age of drinking in England's 18. But they, the boys used to, they used to know the doorman and that round here. And they used to like manage to slime me in. Be like, this is tough. It's like, he ain't going to cause any brother. We'll look after him. He used to get me in. And uh, I must have been 16, maybe 17 a push. I think I was 16. And uh, there's these girls in the corner and they were looking at me for whatever reason. Uh, and they were like, oh, they're going tough. So those girls like you, why don't you get in there? And I was like, haven't you lot worked it out? I've got a boyfriend. And I showed them a picture of a boy on my phone. And I think they were all a bit taken aback. I can't really remember the reaction. It wasn't bad, but it was more surprised and shocked, I think. And then uh, on the Tuesday night, I went into training. They were like, tough, did you try and tell us something on Saturday? And I was like, really sheepish. But they were right. They looked after me. Absolutely fine. No issues. No issues ever playing with them? No, not with them. Boys were good as gold. I think one person said something. Everyone shut him down. No, I had no issues there. None whatsoever. Did any opponents you were playing with back at, at that time, did they ever know about it? Or was it just mainly the team knew? Uh, so we played in a league that was quite far apart. Like Journeys were fair distances. So they probably didn't at that point. Uh, clubs in the area, other teams will have heard very quickly. And I know like Millers, who's the manager at Hartley, I've worked for the last four years. Before we met, he, he knew who I was. And he said, back in the day, like, it was a massive thing. People were like, talking about it because it never happened before. So pe- people would have known I was gay. Probably not our opponents when I was young because we were playing teams from 150 miles away. They, they would have been completely out of their social circle. Mm-hmm. After you tell your, your teammates... Does your boyfriend start coming to the games or did he go before? Oh, so not that one. I had one boyfriend come to games, uh, Rory. Oh, do you know what? First person I thought I loved again. Shocker. Didn't actually. Typical teenager. Uh, and he come to watch some of the big ones now. He used to come into the stand. He used to come stand with a bottle, bottle of vodka, for God's sake. Uh, and then I don't <laughs> think he was interested in the football. I think he was interested in boozing and being with his mates and that. But yeah, that was nice. That was nice. He used to. Uh, come and watch a few but apart from that not really to be honest <laughs> <laughs> how did you start getting the into coaching uh so i went and played for a few different teams of, of half decent level i guess I, I, I got a lot better but i still ultimately was terrible and uh, my old boss who was at camberley was managing a reserve team of a lover local senior club and it was like, it's actually the worst player I've ever seen, but you've got a football brain. Do you want to be my assistant manager? And effectively, all it was at first was doing the warm-ups and helping him do the water bottles, maybe put on the odd session here and there if he was struggling. But it was a good way in, and he's still my mentor now, actually. When we spend, uh, yeah, he, uh, that was my first job, and I just worked my way up. Was that at Cove? Yeah, that was at Cove, yeah. Good knowledge, very good knowledge. So how long were you at Cove? Oh... Only a year. I was at Cove for a year, and then the club pulled the budget on the reserve team, and we looked for another team. As a team, uh, they turned into Sutton Common Rovers, which is you won't have heard of them over there, but they're a semi-professional club. Uh, not the biggest, but they're they're a good side and they're good people and that. And we did the reserves there for a year, and then the travel was a bit of a distance, and we come back to our area and Hartley offered us a reserve team job. Helped out at Hartley Reserves, which is where I ended up doing the first. And I, get, I applied for a job in America, actually. And I went over to America, coached there for a year. And I come back and I had two job offers. So Sutton Common Rovers offered me the first team assistant manager's job. And Hartley offered me the youth team manager's job. So I did that for two years. And then uh, the Hartley manager got sacked. And they wanted to build a new management team. And they offered me the job as the head coach of the first team. And then the rest of history, last four years, obviously, been unbelievable success that none of us probably expected, certainly on the level it's happened. And here I am now. Well, let's back up a little bit, because you breezed through that. <laughs> um, <laughs> where did you get hired in, in America? In uh, the US? I got hired, there was, it was a company called uh, UK Elite Soccer. I don't know if you've heard of them. So uh, effectively, I went for a job out there. We lived in America for a year. And it was nine months. 
and we just had all sorts of jobs. So they would hire us out to teams. We'd coach different teams every evening. It would be the same team each evening, do you see what I mean? But it would be like different teams we were working with. Mm-hmm. Um, we would do little soccer camps in the morning for like little four or five-year-olds. They called it petite. Uh, and we did what else did we do we had like a select team so like all the best players in the area and we would like take little tournaments all around the, around the country which is cool and then we also did in the summer we did something called residentials where the best teams would come and they'd live with us on like a decent college grounds or whatever for a week or two and we'd train them up so it was quite a, a holistic coaching approach really there was an awful lot of stuff going on what part of the US was this in? Uh, I lived in well, I lived in a town called Columbia, so I guess that's easy to say. Uh, like near Baltimore, so Baltimore's half an hour one way, DC's mm-hmm. half an hour one way, and uh, Annapolis is around half an hour one way. Oh, okay. How did you find your time in America? Was it was it fun oh, or were you yeah, busy all the time? Oh, I absolutely buzzed off it. To be fair, uh, missed lots of it now. So I miss miss Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake Factory was quality. Uh, we used to try and make cheesecake factories when we got home, actually. So Oreo cheesecake was absolutely the way forward. Uh, what else do I miss? They're, they're the main things I miss, like food-wise and that. Good just people. food you miss? Yeah, I, I live the life, miss the lifestyle. I love your extreme weather. I know it sounds stupid, but like, like how really warm it is one day. Like it's it's real decent weather there. Like you can go and swim in your rivers. That's cool. But then like a couple of days later, it could be snowing, and it's proper snow or proper lightning or whatever. Um. Yeah, some of the best memories. So like, we used to go and like swim in like all the rivers and all that, and you have like your little rapids. Like we don't have that in England, mm-hmm. and we just go and like float in the rapids and float downstream, and that. that's really cool. I buzzed off that. Yeah, so like, you need to come back and come to California because California is different than Maryland. We yeah, don't get what? the snow along the coast. Um, okay, just warm. We, just warm. All it's the time. yeah, and we're you know I can go to the beach in five minutes from where I live, and then. Four hours no away, four hours away, I could drive to the snow in the winter time. No way! I'm very jealous. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, and our weather's our weather's nice in California. Where is it you live? Uh, Northern California. What what town? What town was it called? Uh, the, the closest town is Santa Cruz. It's a little beach town. I've heard of it. I think I've heard of it anyway. I've heard of a Santa Cruz. Might be the one. <laughs> it's the. Do you know Lost Boys? The movie Lost yes. Boys. That's where it was filmed with Santa Cruz, or at least parts of it were. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. and then the movie Very Us, the movie Us that just came out. Yeah. That was also filmed in Santa Cruz. Very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. So the year or the nine months in in the U.S. was that you said that was a contract? Yeah, it was a contract. I got offered to come back, but I was quite homesick. I know it sounds silly, but I want to make it in the football league in England. And it's all about networking. And the longer you're out the game in England, the more you lose your contacts and you lose relevance. So it's harder to get back in. So I thought if I want to just do kids coaching and things like that, it would be perfect within another year or two. But I want to do first team adult. So I thought going home was the right thing. I also had a boyfriend at the time who put up with me being away for a year, but another year probably wouldn't have been the one. (laughs) That's a, yeah, a year away is a long time. Yeah, it is, yeah. Especially when you've got another half at home and good, I had a good network of friends back home and things like that, which I missed very, very much. But it was still amazing. It was still amazing times in America and that. It was a, it's a really nice country. Yeah. Uh, parts of it are. <laughs> Ups and downs, same as everywhere, eh? Yeah. So when you get back to, to England, what's your first job back? I did Sutton Common Rovers reserve, uh, first team assistant manager, and I managed the youth team at Hartley. Okay, so you did that at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and they're rival clubs as well, but they both they both trusted me, so I, n- I never moved one player's over from one club to the other. And they're completely different challenges. So obviously, youth teams are all about developing and improving players and bringing through into the first team. Well, the first team obviously is about winning. Don't win, you get sacked. Simple as that. So very, very different challenges. Which, is, which obviously I found quite exciting. You like to, if you coach all day every day, obviously you like to have a few different, different challenges and a few different uh, questions asked of you. In that, yeah, it was it was good. What's the difference between being a manager and a coach? Oh, it it depends really. It depends what club you're at and what the manager asks of you. So, uh, starting obviously I've just started as a manager now. 
of, of a new club. And the main difference I can tell you right now is the amount of time you're on the phone to players, trying to get players through the door. But this is a bit of a new project for me as it is. So I've got a blank, blank canvas and uh, I need to build a team very quickly. And so you're grafting over players. But yeah, no, a lot of graft on that. Uh, Hartley, re- really, uh, I-, I was very lucky and I had a manager that trusted me an awful lot. And so my roles wouldn't have been that different. So I was still in charge of setting up our shape in and out of possession. Uh, I helped with the budgets when we signed players, making sure the monies were right and things like that. And uh, dealing with players day in, day out. But probably not to the level that you would as a manager, like dealing with the players, which I'm finding out now, like as as we're speaking on this chat right now, I've had a few message me. They just want a bit of attention, bless them. <laughs> Worse than the gays. <laughs> and they're already, well, they could be both too, but. Um... Well, they could be. I don't think these ones are, but they could be. <laughs> I know plenty that are, not these ones. <laughs> <laughs> Having to talk to players, are you talking to your players that you already have on the team, or are you talking to the players that you're trying no, I don't to, have any, to I don't have any. I don't have any. So obviously I left Hartley uh, at the end of the season to become a first-team manager. I've taken a new first-team manager's job. Uh, some players have left. Some players will be given an opportunity because you've got to be fair to them. Like, these players got the team uh, kept them safe and stopped them getting relegated, so they deserve an opportunity and we will be fair to them. You've got to be. But it, it is a complete rebuild. It's a complete rebuild and I'm talking to 20, 30 players at the moment, just trying to get as many good quality ones through the door that will fit the system that we're we're trying to play. Was so it tough not... to was it tough to leave Hartley? Yeah, really tough. I love Hartley. Been obviously done the youth team there now for a good five, six years, and I've done obviously been head coach of the first team for four years, and obviously we've had a lot very successful time there. But the reason for the success has been because we, you have got a fantastic club that backs you. They're a fantastic group of uh, volunteers now that help out down the club and make it a really special place. Um, management team, I was part of a cog. I was a cog in a very strong machine. Like They're, they're friends as well as uh, colleagues as well. Mm-hmm. And we had a good player group. And, and also, we had, you have a, equally, you have a very good support base. It, it's a fantastic club. So leaving it was a very, very difficult move to make. And I, I imagine, too, that you were there for so long that you managed some of the kids in the under-18s who ended up being on the first team. Yeah, yeah, a couple of them have come through, which is unbelievable. So we had young Louis Paget. Uh, he's played my youth team for a couple of years. In fact, I think it was one of my first signings, actually, all them years ago. And he's found himself uh, into the first team, which was great. He uh, starts, he started on the bench, but he's worked his way in. And he starts more games than he doesn't now. In fact, he was 20, I'll tell you what, that's how many years ago it was. So he turned 21 a couple of weeks ago. We signed him when he was 16. So it's amazing when you see that. And his progression's more than it seems as well, because as a club, we've been promoted. Uh, we have back-to-back promotions. So not only has he come through from the youth team into the first team of a step five club, he's then gone first team step four, first team step three. So that, that's quite incredible. He's achieved something there. That's really good. Yeah, it is. Are you... So you leave... Hartley, and you go on to um, what's your the new Nap Hill? Is that that? Yeah, Nap Hill. Yeah, they're they're the same level that Hartley were when I joined Hartley. So we're two leagues below because Hartley got had back to back promotions. So we I've dropped down two leagues to where we started, but now as a manager. And then with with Hartley, there were one of the years you were going to be promoted. There was uh, issues with the ground, right? That made yeah, you stay that was back. The first year, yes, yeah, so the first year we won the league. Uh, we won by quite convincingly, actually. But I don't think the club expected uh, quite as much success as we had. We, we certainly didn't. And uh, so in the English football pyramid, for every league you go up, there's a different set of requirements, like more seats, more like bigger stand, more terracing, more turnstiles, and this and that. And it just wasn't up to scratch. Because we were effectively a little village team. So they had to build a new stand, put in some more terracing, build some turnstiles, do all those sort of things. And uh, the second year, we won it again, thank God. Got ourselves promoted up to step four, which is obviously an amazing achievement. So how many people would go to a, a Hartley match? Oh, God, when we started, the average was only like 50, 60 people, something like that. Um, the end of this year, the average attendance is 300, which is it's mad how much has gone up. But at that level, that's still not even much. Like, 
some teams in our league would go to Weymouth if there's one and a half thousand people there. So we've come out of bottom bottom level of what would be classed as same professional football and it's local local towns and the bigger villages. And we've worked our way up and now we're playing big town and city clubs. It's unbelievable. But we're competing. We're doing well. The, cl- the club's done very well. That's good. So when you take the, on the new job at Nap Hill, you go down a few levels. What is the, the field like now? I mean, is it already, if you are successful, you're able to be promoted? Or is there work that needs to be done at that level? No, it, it's pretty much all there. They've got, uh, they, they've got a lovely little ground. In fact, I've got a blooming got my manager's office. We've got like Sky Sports TV in the dressing rooms in my office. We've got all sorts. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good club. They, they'll need some more seats. I think we need another 150 seats, which, which sounds a lot, but it's, well, to be fair, it'll cost around £8,000, I think, for that. But they've got the money and it's all sorted. And as I said, if we're in and around it come October, then they'll, they'll get it done. Because you need it for us to get promoted, the ground would have to be ready by March the thirty first or March the thirtieth, whatever it is. So oh, it even before like the season ends. Yeah, after done by the season ends, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's mad, absolutely mad. I understand because the planning process behind it all. Yeah, I, I guess so. But well, no, not necessarily because every league's got different rules. So to go up from step five to step four, it has to be done before the end of the season. When oh, we got promoted from step four to step three. We had a year's grace to get it done. Strange, isn't it? Same for step three to two. You get a year's grace. And then when you go from conference south to conference national, it's got to be already there. Or you're not even allowed to compete in the playoffs. Hmm. So while you're doing all this with Hartley and then now with Napoli, you're still involved with uh, Pulse Premier, right? Yeah, it's a private football academy for 16 to 19 year olds. What is your involvement with them? Oh, I'm the academy manager, so I'm supposed to look after them. I think they look after me more than I look after them, to be fair. So uh, we partner an education company. So the education company do, uh, I guess it's, it's not quite college. It's one below college for you, so the younger age group, so for the 16 to 19-year-olds. So mm-hmm. they do their education, and then I train them as full-time footballers. So they'll train with me in the morning, and in the afternoon they'll go and uh, – Oh, what's going on here? My phone's being silly. They're in the morning, they'll train with me. In the afternoon, they'll do class. All the other way around. And then I, I look after all the teachers and that as well. And is that a, So technically, I'm a head teacher. God knows how that's happened. <laughs> oh, damn. That's different than I expected it to be. Yeah, that is literally what I am. I have no idea how that happened, by the way. But to be fair, I, I built it myself, so I employed myself, technically. <laughs> so we started with the first year, we started with just 17 kids. Second year, we had 33. So over two classes. Last year was our third year and we've gone just under 50. Next year is our fourth year. And we're hoping to have 60 kids over four classes. So it's growing. They have to do their, uh, if they fail GCSEs at school, their maths or English, they have to sit, resit maths and English with us. But otherwise they do a level three in sport as a first or second year. So that's equivalent of three A levels. So they go to uni after if they want, or they can get a scholarship to America to come and join, uh, come over and join you lot. <laughs> Or we can get them to New Zealand and they can play and coach there. And or they can do a third year of us and we do a personal trainer course and a fitness instructor course for them. Nice. So when they come to America, you're talking about our colleges, right? Yeah, your colleges. Yeah. So they get scholarships uh, depending on how good they are and how good their education is. What's the hardest part with doing that, with the academy manager position? Because obviously the football, I imagine, is is easy for you or easier because it's what you've been doing your whole life. The hardest bit. The hardest bit is probably the most joyful bit. The hardest bit is dealing with 50-odd teenagers. So when a lot of them, obviously, we're quite close. So I don't know if you probably guessed it, but I'm a bit of an idiot. And <laughs> I literally just say what I say what I think. I don't mind being wrong. I don't mind making mistakes. I don't mind being a bit of a wally. And the kids, the kids uh, relate a lot more to that. And so because of it, they come to me with almost anything. And it could be two o'clock in the morning, they'll be phoning me up with want, needing this, wanting that. Or, But no, it's, uh, it's a very trusted position. You have to look after them. And with the kids these days, you, you get what you put into them. If you look after them and you believe in them and you work hard for them, then they'll do the same for you. So I think that's the hardest thing. Yeah, and I think having the personality, personality like you do where – you are willing to fail. I mean, you try, and if you fail, you admit it and move on. You fix it. So I think see, having kids see that in an adult is probably huge for them. Yeah, I, I, I'd go a little bit further than that as well. I, I actually, um, I go further than that. 
I actually fail on purpose sometimes when I first with them. I hope they, I'm sure they're not listening to this. <laughs> Give away my <laughs> secrets. So kids these days, they grow up in a world, especially in our education system, where it's not okay to fail and it's not okay to be wrong. And because of it, they're, they're very much scared of failure uh, from a very young age. And they're very scared of looking very silly to their peers because teenagers are all the time anyway. And so very early doors when I get them, I might put in a session like a pattern of play or something and I'll purposely muck it up and then I'll ask them for help. And they'll see me flustering and getting flout and and be flouncing all over the shop like the massive gay I am. (laughs) And then they'll be like, and then then they'll help me. And then two things happen. One, it's okay to be wrong because it's my job and I've still screwed it up. And two, it's okay to ask for help. And they're more likely then to ask me for help because I've asked them for help. It works. It works really well. Um, it's very tough getting them to see things out these days as well because I don't know if you uh, know, like, social media. I know it sounds stupid, but, like, if me and you, like, we're from a different generation, like, if, for us, if we complete a project like you're doing now with your podcast and that, if you succeed and you achieve something, you get a real feel-good feeling, don't you? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's endorphins being released in your brain. Now, unfortunately you get the same release from getting likes on Facebook or on Instagram. So if kids these days are having a big project and they're struggling to get by, all they need to do is go on Facebook, stick on a filter or a Snapchat, stick on a little filter, get loads of likes or whatever it is they want, and they get that instant feel good, that instant gratification. And so because of it, it's very hard steering them away from social media and actually completing what they want to do. Because, again, that fear of failure, rather than them say, I'm struggling with this and look silly. It's very much, oh, I didn't try my hardest, so that's why I didn't complete it. And then they just go on social social media and get uh, get their feel good kicks from there. And that's what happens to a lot of them, I'm afraid. So we have to yeah. deal with that. Yeah, that must be tough nowadays to deal with kids. I mean, kids are hard anyways, just with the problems they have, the problems we all had as kids. But the added influence of social media and you know, whether it's bullying or trying to be that next influencer and successful, it it just creates a lot of problems. It does. Bullying, we deal with that a little bit differently, probably. In fact, I know I deal with it differently to anyone else does. So, well, certainly that I know of. So I have a lot of kids come up to me and they talk to me about bullying and this and that, and they're struggling with this, they're struggling with that. Now, bear in mind, these boys want to go into a sports culture. And rightfully or wrongfully, wrongfully, it is, especially at the first team, it's pack mentality. It really is. And if you're weak, you'll get eaten alive. And that and that is the dressing room, I'm afraid. And if you took that out of the dressing room, you ain't as competitive and you're not going to succeed. So as a manager, I'm saying as it is, it's very difficult not to, to it's very difficult to interfere in that. You, the players do what the players do at first team level. With the real young kids, of course, you protect them. But at adult level, that's kind of how it is. So what's important is not to, change that necessarily but it's to equip the kids to deal with it that's what's really important if they want to make it because right like it or not football is not going to change that's that is how you're successful in sport the most successful teams are the most ruthless i'm afraid so they have to be equipped to deal with that psychologically and people people uh tend to forget the psychological corner of building a human being or building a sports player it's very important so if I get boys come up to me saying, he's saying this to me or he's saying that to me and all that, first thing I do is I say, okay, laugh at yourself. Or whatever they're saying, just take the piss out of yourself as well. And you totally disarm them. And I've had a kid, I know it sounds stupid, but he like, really, likes race, really likes race cars. He likes Grand Prix and that. And mm-hmm. then for whatever reason, the kids took to that and were hammering him for it. And he couldn't cope with it. And so I just I just told him, just like, I don't say stupid, but like just every time someone says something in the group, start sending pictures in race cars or something just to annoy them. Just like clearly like, just take the piss out of yourself, like take this out of the situation. And sure enough, soon it stops. And that, that's a really key ingredient. It's, it's okay to laugh at yourself. It's okay to have fun. And the second you laugh at yourself, what can they say? You know, with you dealing with kids and not necessarily on your team, because you know what happens with kids, you need to keep within you so you keep their secrets and stuff. But of course. As a gay man in football, you must get people reaching out to you online or if you're at a match or somewhere that know you because you're so public, reaching out to you and help, asking for help, asking for guidance. 
Yeah, I do. I get a lot. I, I know a lot of people in the game that are, that are gay. Uh, players, coaches, referees, secretaries. I know all sorts of various levels and, and various statements are being out. So I get some people that come up to me and, and they are out and they're out in their circles. Like, but they're not, it's not like public knowledge. But I get more than anything, I get people that are a little bit older that no one else in the world knows except me and maybe one or two other people they've been with or they're very unsure of themselves. And it's, it's quite sad, really. I, I, I do obviously do my best for them and things like that. But they obviously, I think a lot of them grew up in a very different time and it wasn't okay to be gay. Mm-hmm. And their life's too built for it to change. And I think they're very scared of it. I know some people that have made the jump and they've been very, very brave. Uh, but m- m- many haven't been able to. Uh, that's not because they're not brave or anything. It's just because their life isn't in the right place to do it at this, at this moment. But yeah, there 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 are a lot a lot of people are very scared about how that would affect their career or this or that. So it's a shame. Would you see say then that the younger kids coming up who are gay who are playing football are having a much easier time accepting it? Their friends are accepting it more and. Yeah, not not necessarily just in football. I think I think that's in general. I think football reflects society as a whole very much. But yeah, I think like people keep saying to me, "Well, when do you think a football is going to come out?" I don't think they will per se because I think it's it's a massive like life change when you do that, and also you get an awful lot of publicity and, and that side of things. I think with younger people, it's a lot more acceptable to be gay and. You know that you're gay younger, I guess, because obviously it's out there of what you are and you, you get to come to terms with yourself uh, a lot easier and it's obviously a lot more healthy. So I think you'll find it might be a, a young gay lad like is playing for an academy or something that works his way through a system that ends up playing first team football that's already out, just happens to be gay. And it won't be quite as much of it way it would be a story, but I don't think it would be the same sort of a story if it was if a 25 or a 26-year-old did. I think it would be quite... Flu- I think... Uh, I think that's probably how it will happen, to be fair. I think that's how it will evolve. Yeah, probably. I imagine there won't be those big coming out moments that happen. No, that's tough. Those coming out moments, I reckon, well, I think you'd probably agree with me, it's tougher for a 26-year-old to come out than it was for me at 16. Because a 26-year-old has built his life. Also, at 16 years old, you haven't. Yeah, and usually, though, too, when you come out and you feel better anyways so it's just getting to that point and and finally doing it yeah it's uh obviously very scary it's scary for anyone of any age but it it, it can i'm sure it is a relief to get it out uh out in the open it was it for me i'm not sure at the time I, i think it probably was it's it's much easier to be yourself and obviously i think you're going to perform better in your job whether it's football or everyday life you're going to perform better if you're not hiding secrets because obviously secrets weigh you down and obviously half the time you're thinking about what you're saying so people are talking about what you're up to and things like that you've got to make sure you're not talking about a boy if you're not out and you're talking about a girl or whatever it is and having to pretend you fancy her and you've spoken to her and you've done this and you've done that it's uh it wears you out it definitely wears you out so there's no way you can perform at your best how did you get such a good head on your shoulders when you talk about, you know, being the young, young kid, had a lot of fun, and you've seemed to have been able to grow into this position you have now, I think, even though you I can think, still be, you know, fun and a you can be an idiot sometimes, <laughs> yeah, but you're still able to, to be that professional, to handle, you know, new players, handle finances, handle, you know, all types life of experiences i think i think mate, well, i think most people can do that mate i think i'd like to think what i'm better at. I th- i'd like to think it's the psychological side i think i'd like to be quite good at all with young people because i've been around young people we all we all have haven't we but it's just life experience it's like or saying it is I, I actually grew up in care so i spoke i hung around like i was in foster at one point there's loads of kids and obviously kids like that you attract other kids like that so a lot of the people I uh, grew up with come from various backgrounds and that and uh, because of it you, you understand kids because you're around them so much of, of all different sorts and then strangely I actually played for I played for an LGBT team called London Titans a gay football team and I joined them at 19 years old and all of a sudden I'm hanging around with judges and lawyers and politicians and they're my, be- they're my best friends 
and suddenly uh, you see people from all walks of life that react to things very very differently and you obviously have your own experiences and that and you throw it all together and you get you, you get uh to find out how people think i guess oh, that's a guess by the way but yeah what was it like playing on the titans oh, titans is amazing so i joined titans at 18 19 years old uh i was an absolute idiot by the time i, I when i got to titan still i had no idea how to act uh being a teenager i was and all that sort of thing and uh, but they took me under their wing and they were very kind to me and they looked after me and i would say that to be fair i'd say they raised me as much as anyone to be honest i really would so obviously i've had people look after me that for my life and that but they they taught me how to act and they were very patient with me when others probably wouldn't have been and I learned how to act in different social situations because as much as they're really good to me, if I was an idiot, they would soon let me know. And that I, I honestly think that's put me in amazing stead going forwards. Uh, I'm very grateful. And then also you probably had some of your darkest moments being a gay athlete on that team, right? With some of the opponents you had. Oh yeah. Was, uh, no, that wasn't in the early years though. So we played uh, obviously in a gay league and we were absolutely fine. And we were, well, we started off, we were terrible. We got better and better. And by the end, we were actually the uh, best team in the league. We won the league two years in a row. So from there, we started to play, uh, look for better opposition, or not better, but stronger opposition. And we entered into the mainstream Sunday league, a London league called the Sportsman League. And in our first year in it, oh my God, we we got some matey spat on me, friend to stab me, like with every game, faggots, queers, all that sort of stuff. Not every game, that's a lie, but a, a, a fair few games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did dry up as the year went on and the next year, we, we didn't really get any of that. And now there's hardly any comments at all, I don't believe. So, so it's, then uh, it's got better. When you're dealing with that then, are your teammates that you said helped raise you in a way, did they help get get you through I was, that i was already grown up i was already well they, they, of course they have my back they always have my back but that that was more recent that's like four five years oh, okay. that's probably five six years ago when I, i'm talking about that i'm talking about when i'm 18 19 20 years old let's move on to i want to talk about some lgbt issues in sports with your thoughts first of all on the lgbt supporter groups that a lot of premier league a lot of uh, english football teams have Oh, they, they do a fantastic job. Uh, again, it's, a lot of it is visibility, ensuring young people that you, you can be gay and like or be involved in sport. I think that's massive. Uh, I think they, they've they done fantastic jobs in uh, changing people's perception. And uh, so on the visibility side of things, uh, one of, at the time, actually, a guy called Callum Jewell, a good friend of mine, he uh, was one of the people that started up Proud Hornets. And he managed to get the whole main stand behind the goal at Watford at a Premier League game to hold up pieces of paper each, which made a rainbow flag. I mean, I know how nervous he was before, but he did a, what a fantastic job that was. In a live Premier League match, to have a rainbow flag held up by 15, 20,000 people behind a goal. That's, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. So they, they definitely do a good group. Um, the numbers are proliferating. There are more and more uh, popping up all over the place. Their numbers are growing uh inside the, the groups as a whole as well as a number of groups and they they look after their own as well um i was down at uh, proud cherries recently they had an event and they definitely look after their own community uh, and uh, that's definitely a good thing so i think it's good for people on the outside the of the community to see in and see actually it is okay to be gay and in sport but equally when you're on the inside of the group they uh, give you a good support pla- uh, support network for y- you and your everyday life. They're very good. Do you think that, like in, in U.S., the Major League Soccer, and actually all our sports, I think, we have Pride Nights. Um, mm-hmm. The teams wear special jerseys or, or trainers before. Um, usually the, the corner flags are rainbow flags and stuff like that, and they honor uh, local groups. Do you think the Premier League will get to that point eventually where they have Pride Nights? Potentially. Uh, they they already it, do in, going in that way. They, they already have rainbow laces, didn't they? Yeah, the and rainbow it's, it's laces. To wear them. They have that. They have uh, each club supports, like football will be homophobia month and things like that. 
and they do different uh, events and stuff like that. So it's, I'm not sure if it's the same level we were at. I can't compare because obviously I've not seen, but mm-hmm. they they certainly do an awful lot for us. Oh, totally. What are your goals for this year for Napa? We're going to fly. So I'll speak candidly to you uh, mm-hmm. because obviously it's not real so local. <laughs> But the, the, the aim is to win the league and we want to win the Vars and which is which is at Wembley and you get a big crowd and you get there's about forty thousand there for that this year. Uh and get getting promoted straight away and I wanna do what we did at Hartley. Uh, realistically more locally, we we just wanna fly under the radar. We we're not shouting about people I've had all the local newspapers now on the phone saying, What are you gonna do, what are you gonna do with this and that? And the answer is we we're just gonna take it one game at a time. And that's all we are gonna do. We we're just gonna look at first game of the season Winning that, that's our only goal right now. And it has to be, because actually, if you do anything, you look too far in the future, you just fall flat on your face. It has to be game at a time. So ambition and realism might be two very different things as well. Obviously, we are a brand new team. Uh, got them together, a group to play. I haven't even got them all to, I haven't even got a group of players totally together yet because we can't even sign them on. But it's going to be, it's a brand new project. And if we finish anywhere in the top six, that's an incredible season. What is your your career goal? I want to be a first team manager in the football league, league two or up. Even conference premier would be more than fine. What do you think you need to do to get there? Be successful at two more clubs to get into the conference. So being successful is being at Pill for two or three years. Uh, get that definitely get them promoted uh, in that time, and stabilise them at a higher level. May, maybe see if we can push them on one more. And then go to another club of around that level, be successful there as well. And then you've got uh, you've got a history of success then at, at three different teams. Because obviously I've got Hartley before that. Because once is a one-off, twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern. You do it three times, there's a pattern of you bringing success. And when you're there with that experience, then a full-time club, like a conference club or something, will say, look, come here. And from there, then it's, it's in your own hands, really. You're just off the Football League. And if you do well, you can get them up yourself. If you stabilise a team of that level for a few years that were struggling and pushed them on a bit, and you never know, that's when a League Two club comes in for you. So I think realistically, it's uh, I'd be naive to say if it was to be a five-year project or a ten-year project. I, I think it's probably a fifteen-year project realistically, ten to fifteen. Oh, okay. Um, I'd love it to be quicker. I'm being oh, realistic. of course. But in saying that, I'd still only be in my mid forties. In fifteen years, I'm mid forties, and that's still young as a manager. Let me finish this interview with my final 20 questions. Um, cool. And that way I could let you go and, and get to bed. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Fly. If you could pick a personal theme song, what song would you choose? Gold by Spandau Ballet, because that's Harley's song. Nice. Who was your first celebrity crush? Cristiano Ronaldo. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Good question probably brian clough because he's my hero football right. what is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week alex ferguson's autobiography very good good read well worth it what is the most recent streaming obsession for you do you have time with that with building a football club no not really I don't really have time but every friday night's date night with reese and we go out, have dinner, and afterwards we come back and we watch a bit of telly. So we were watching Breaking Bad. Now he wants to watch Sabrina. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried. I got midway through the season. I was done. <laughs> Don't blame you. <laughs> um, which fictional character would you like to meet in real life? Which fictional character would I like to live in real life? Wow. Peter Griffin. <laughs> Nice. If animals could talk, which animal would be the most annoying? Cats, they judge you. Mm, true. Who inspires you? My competitors. What is your favorite word? Oxymoron. What is your least favorite word? Mm, I don't have one. I love, I love all words. I'm a wordsmith. Oh, no, basically. I hate the word basically. It doesn't basically. don't need to use it. True. Relevant. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, Reese. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Hey, he's your partner. He should. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. What turns you off? 
Nothing. Oh, lies. Don't like lies. Pointless. Um, you know who Tom... lack of ambition. Lack of ambition. Terrible. Do you know who Tom Bosworth is? No. He's a, a British uh, race walker. Okay. And I had him on, like, one of my first episodes. His answer for what turned you off was women. <laughs> which I still think is the funniest answer. He's a very good answer. I'll give him that. What is your favorite curse word? Uh, oh, no, don't have one. I, I, I use all of them. You love them all equally? Yeah, I use them all sporadically, yeah. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? What sound or noise do I love? I love the sound of rain or the sea. Nice. What sound or noise do you hate? Scratching of metal. Horrible. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd love to have been a dancer or a singer. I've been buzzing, but I've got no, I've got no coordination, I'm afraid. Like a go-go dancer or? No, no, no. Just like a proper, like, just like a break dancer or something. That'd be so cool. Oh, okay. Um, what profession would you not like to do? Anything in retail. The dullest thing ever. Yeah, it's, that's hard. Not to me. Ugh. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and final, finally, my, my last question is this. If you can tell a 12 or 13-year-old kid who's struggling with his own sexuality or her sexuality, what's that one thing, what, what one word of wisdom you could tell them to help them? Be happy with yourself. You're going to be okay. That's cool. Luke... Thank you for coming on. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the conversation I had with Luke. He is so funny. He was a joy to talk with. And I look forward to meeting him and seeing his Napa FC club play in the fall when I go to London. Do me a favor. Like, share, retweet. Wherever you see this on social media, if you could just share it, please. I want to help grow my podcast, and that's one way to do it. You can also review it on iTunes. I have one more episode for this season. Then I'll have a short break and be back in August for a second season with all new guests. Anyways, have a great week. Talk to you soon.